voice of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. Father in heaven, thank you. Those beautiful words that were just sung about real peace that comes to broken men and women. It's good news for our souls today. Lord, we pray even now for your work, the work of the kingdom to go forth, Lord, um, here in Fort Worth and across the globe. Pray, O Lord, that nations might come to know you, that the church gathered today all across the face of the earth. O Lord, that your name would be made much of. O Lord, we pray for the poor and the widow, that you would meet them in their need, O Lord Jesus. This is religion that you find to be true. And Father, we pray even now in our own midst, there's a wide spectrum of disposition of heart that we come into this room with this morning. Lord, some of us having walked with You and known You for many, many years, and it is a joy to be here once again in Your presence. And yet others of us, Lord, come in here cynical and skeptical. We've been through the whole church thing and we've been burned out and We don't really know why we're here this morning. For others of us, Lord, we're just hoping that nobody would figure us out. That we wouldn't be exposed this morning. And so, Lord, it's easier to hide than to to come clean. Lord, no matter where we're at, whether we've walked with You for a long time, or we have no concept of what that would even mean, every single one of us stands in deep need of Your grace. And so, O Lord, would You come even now Open our eyes, O Lord, by the Spirit to the Word that we might know life and that we might know it to the full because of the person and work of Jesus. Would You be with us now, Lord? Would You be with me as I preach, O Lord, and deliver a straight blow with a crooked stick straight to the hearts of these men and women, O Lord? We ask that You would give us eyes and ears attentive to Your Word. And it is in Your name that we pray. Amen. Well, the reading from the Word today comes from the second chapter of the book of Titus. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn there? Titus is one of the last letters of Paul in the New Testament there, written to a pastor bearing the same name as the letter to the church on the island of Crete. And he is giving instructions there about what it looks like to set up elders in every town and how to shepherd this church there. And so as you read, as we read this together, please do keep this in mind. I'm reading from chapter 2, verse 11 through 3-7 this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. This is good news for our souls. I pray that we would hear what He has to say to us this morning. Um, I wanted to start out by saying it is a real joy to be with you all. Uh, to look out here and to see the friendships that we've gotten to know over the past couple of years and then to come and be able to preach to you. I, I just want you to know I've, I'm encouraged. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited that I get to be up here and, and do this. And so it's with great joy that uh, I, I, I get to start. This is um, a real privilege, you all. Thank you. Um, at the cost of being cliche, uh, I want to ask you this. Uh, have you ever wanted things to be different? Now, I know I know what comes to my mind when I ask that. I'm just going to share it with you. Here we go. Two words, Tennessee football. Okay? Now, as an alumni of UT, uh, to pull for the volunteers in recent years has been to back a losing horse. That's just the only way to, 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 to name it. Every fall, after about three or four weeks into the season, I just start longing for Jesus to return. To just end the misery and put things right. Needless to say, the past 15 years or so have been incredibly difficult for me in the fall. I've longed for real change. Then last winter, believe it or not, the head coach stepped down. And within minutes, our fans' inflated egos began to say things like this. We're going to secure the best coach in history. And when he comes, he'll put everything back to the way it's supposed to be. He'll change our story to one of winning and prominence again. We'll finally get a coach. When he comes, he'll change the very economy of things, the order of things, if you will. Character will matter. And grades. And winning. And then and only then will we be set free to dominance again. Our freedom will come and our glory will surpass anything that we've ever seen before. And the humor of it is, is that every college football program or basketball program says these words anytime there's a new coach that's coming on board. But it doesn't just happen in the sports world. You know this in your business world. When that CEO comes... Finally, things will be different. 
Or if we could just get her to be our chancellor or our president or our um, principal, once she gets here, things will really change and, they, and, and our fine institution will finally become what it's supposed to be. This isn't a new thing either. Catch this. Um, all the way back in the Hellenistic period, uh, the Macedonian Ptolemy I, he was one of Alexander the Great's generals. And when Alexander's kingdom split up, Ptolemy was sort of given oversight of what is now modern-day Egypt. And it was actually written of him these words. Listen. The great God, benefactor, and Savior, the manifest one, the beneficent one, Ptolemy I, is now here. In other words, his appearance was soon to change the status quo. Every inch of the empire was now going to be made better. You could probably see where I'm going with this. Paul and Titus's world was one where the appearance of a new emperor was soon to usher in a new world order. And when a new emperor came, when he came into power, a new way of doing things was really at hand. A new story, a new narrative would be written. The economy of the empire would change and the emperor was sure to liberate his people from any sort of oppressive rule that might have been. But their appearing could only bring so much change. It could only go so deep, as it were. And Paul, in Titus 2, chapter 13, co-ops this imperial language, pregnant with meaning, and applies it to a king who is going to bring change of an altogether different sort. Why? Because what the change that he brings is going to go deep to where no other change had ever gone, straight to the human heart. That is what he is getting at. Paul reminds Titus and us of the shocking news that the grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And since, and since this grace has come, the remaking of the human heart is inevitable. It just is. And so, Paul isn't saying that since the grace of God has come, that hearts might be remade. No, he's saying the grace of God is unrelenting in what it aims to do. Namely, the utter renewal of the entire man from the inside out. Paul shows us, therefore, three particular aspects about this unrelenting grace. Here they are. Much like the appearing of a new emperor, coach, or CEO, Paul highlights what happens when the grace of God makes its debut. He shows us the narrative of grace. We too see the economy, the way that grace actually works, the economy of grace. And lastly, we'll see the liberation of grace. It's easy to believe that the appearance of a new person on the scene will change everything, right? And thankfully, real people have real gifts, and that can be done, but only the grace of God can go deep enough to your heart and to my heart to begin to bring about real and lasting change. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Does that sound good? Okay.
Let's get, let's get going here with a narrative of God's grace. Look with me at verses three, chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. What do I mean? Well, Paul in this series, in this section, he begins to give us a set of exhortations as it relates to living out there um, with other people. Look with me there at verse 3, chapter 1. Remind them, Paul was saying to Titus, to be submissive to rulers. And then he goes on and says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. In other words, he is saying, here is what you ought to do. Here is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to instruct people there in your care, uh, Titus. And he goes on and he says that because of these things, I don't want you to think that you ought to do them for no reason. What is that reason? What is the ground of this? And look with me that this says that every single one of these commands is rooted in the appearance of the grace of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. I'm having to jump back up. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation before, I mean, for all people. Now, Paul, you guys need to know, thinks of life in terms of BG and AG. Before grace and after grace. And he wants us to be able to see that in 3.1, those commands are rooted in what God has done. Did you notice what he says there in verse 3? For we ourselves were once foolish. In other words, all of the things that I'm commanding you to shepherd and to care for, Titus, we ourselves participate in these, one, in these things. But, did you see what he says? When the goodness and loving kindness of our, great, of our God and Savior appeared, by the way, that is the exact language that was written of Ptolemy the first. There's where the language gets stolen. But once that grace appears, everything changes. Why? Because He saved us, because of, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Now, what does all of this have to do with the idea of the narrative of God's grace? Here's what I want you to see. That there was an ark, as it were. There is an ark going on where God takes the sinner justifies him, look in verse 5, right there, I mean, sorry, verse 7, justified by His grace. And then, for the entirety of that person's life, begins to work deep down to change them. And there is a goal. There is an end in, that, in your life and in my life if you are in Christ. Do you see it there in verse 2.14? Where he says this, that He has made you, He has redeemed you from all lawlessness to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. In classic theological terms, we're talking about three particular things. The beginning of the Christian life that we name as justification are being set right before God. The continuation of that life where God changes us from the inside out known as sanctification. And that glorious day or me are made like Him, as John in his first letter says in chapter 3, verse 2. Or me are made in the likeness of Christ at His appearing. That's the arc, the narrative, the story of God's grace. And Paul wants you to know that if you do not see it as an arc, then everything begins to fall apart. Now, what do I mean? Paul wants you and Paul wants me to understand that you must look at the end. You must, must, must 
see what is happening as the end game and draw on that into the present to be able to live life in the present. In other words, we are creatures who need to see and to know and we live our life on the basis of how the story ends. Think about it like this. How many of you all ever pick up a novel, read about three chapters in it and close it and say, that was good. That was so good. Or you pay your 20 bucks for you and your date to go to the movies and at an hour in, you kind of go, it's time to go. It's pretty good. Of course not. You want to know how the story ends. It's what's driving you. It's what motivates you. And Paul is saying that the only way to actually get through the Christian life is to be able to see what happens on the back side. Think about it like this. I don't know how many of you remember the television show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Brief summary of it. A series of questions. Each question, larger dollar amounts are given. The last question is worth a million bucks. Well, in 1999, a contestant named John Carpenter was a contestant on this show. And he had gotten all the way through this last, almost his last question. The million dollar question was sitting before him. And he had what was called a lifeline left where he could phone a friend to have them help with the answer. Some of y'all might know this story. The question itself was, coming from Regis Philbin, which president appeared on the, the, the show the Laugh, of Laugh-In? Was it Lyndon B. Johnson, Nixon, Ford, or Carter? And Carpenter says, I'd like to phone a friend. He says, okay, who would you like to call? He says, I'd like to call my dad, Tom. He says, okay. Regis calls Tom. He says, Tom, your son's about to answer the million-dollar question. The next voice you hear is his. And he says, John, take it away. You have 30 seconds. And I'm going to read you the transcript. Uh, hi, Dad. Hi. Um, I don't really need your help. I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to win a million dollars. Crowd laughs. He says, because the U.S. president that appeared on Laugh-In is Richard Nixon, that's my final answer. And this crowd just erupted. Why is that so? It's just a powerful illustration to me. Because Carpenter knew how things were going to end. And that gave him an incredible confidence in the present to be able to live out his life with this reckless abandon. What about you? I'm going to drive down, drive down deep immediately. Do you know the only power for you to have any sort of power to deal with the indwelling sin in your life is to see that Jesus Christ is at work and will not stop until He is finished with you? Dear brother, who cannot lick, dear sister, who cannot lick that porn addiction of yours, I want you to know it will not always be so. He is at work in your life. And the only way where things will ever get better is for you to begin to see 
that He is committed to making you into something beautiful. Dear parent, whose anger at their children gets the best of them, I want you to know that it will not always be so with your heart and tongue. There is coming a day that Jesus will slay that by the work of His Spirit and you will be different. And I'm trying to say to you now that unless that you begin to see the ark, the story of God's grace, and begin to live on the future promises of God, bringing them back into the present, you will have no resources to live out the Christian life. But this is the great grace to you. These things are true. How would life begin to be different as a church community if we began to see that sin's days were numbered? I mean, wouldn't that begin to change the way that we lived? The way that we related to our children and to our spouses? I'm not going to be like this much longer. But God really is changing me. I belabor this point because I think that it is huge. And I think that most of us walk around with no resources to be able to deal with our sin in this life. And here is one immediately right here before us. Secondly, the economy of grace. What do I mean when I talk about this? I simply mean the inner workings of this grace. Paul wants to assure and calm us that this grace comes to us, verse 3-5, by His own mercy and not by anything that we do. And how do we understand that? Whether or not that we understand that affects the whole course of the Christian life. May I say something to our non-Christian friends, to the skeptics in our midst, to those who are burned out because of toxic faith and church experiences. May I warmly suggest to you that what is at the heart of Christianity is not God looking at us, seeing how good, how moral, how perfect, and how the good things that we can do for Him and for others. And then on that basis, Him accepting us. You see, some of you have grown up in church your whole life and you never heard that. That was true for me. You need to hear that God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with anything of your earning whatsoever. It has everything to do with what God in Christ has done for you on your behalf. For those of you who have been at Fort Worth Press for a while, let that be new. Scrape the scab off for just a second and let that resonate and warm you. Because it's the only thing that will root how you live out your life. This is good news. God's grace comes to us. It says in verse 11, the economy of grace comes to us and it trains us. Now we're going to look at that in just a second. But before I do, I want to zone in on this, zoom in rather, on this one phrase in verse 14 where he says, a people after his own possession. This is Paul's way of hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, when he, the writer, says this, For you, church, you people of God, for you are a people, 
holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And in wonder of all wonders, here it is. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you that He loves you. Think about that. God calls us His special possession. And this because not because we are good and have it together. Rather, not having it together, His glory is manifest in loving those who don't measure up. Who those who can't get it together. The economy of grace has its roots in this confounding logic. God says He loves us on these grounds. Because He loves us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is good news. This idea of training us, what do I mean? I mean this. I want you to begin to see that um, when God comes to us, it is not as though He says, oh, can you just now begin to... uh, I've kind of saved you, but now you kind of take the reins. And you sort of run with this. And the rest of your Christian life is going to be about you working really, really hard only. Now, point three, we're going to come back to this, so hang on. But it's as if He is saying, grace is what dominates your life for the entirety of it. Mark Twain put it perfectly when he said this, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. I mean, some of us have some pretty faithful dogs. And that's really true. Why would this be so important? Dear one, where have you begun to believe that the change in the Christian life happens in any other way than by grace? Have you forgotten this gracious disposition that God has to you? Have you become like the Galatians where Paul says, Who has bewitched you? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Therefore, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, no. That's not the way the... That's not the way grace works. It sets us free. It begins to liberate us. And that's where we're going on this third point. The liberation of God's grace. Look with me at verses 2, 11 to 14. And we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of driving this home. In short, I want you to see that the saving grace of God mentioned in 3.7, that justifying grace is never, ever, ever disconnected from God's training grace. Christian, if you do not hold these two together, you will be tempted to fall off Luther's horse in one way or the other. You're going to fall off to the left and you're going to say, All I got to do is just trust in Christ 
and nothing matters from there on. And that's what we call antinomianism. It's called living without respect to the law, as though the imperatives of the gospel matter zilch. That's an error. The other side of the horse that you can fall off on is what is known as legalism. That is, being made righteous by God by our own moral performance, which I hope you have just heard me say is utterly shattered in the Gospel. So what way does it look like to live then as a Christian in this world? I'll put it another way. What, if anything, do we contribute in the Christian life? How do we talk about God's grace working in us? Philippians 2, chapter 2, sorry, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, God takes His grace, works it into us, only that we might in turn begin to express that by working it out. So what God works in, how do we work out? You see the challenge before us? We've got to find a way to speak about this. And Paul is going to tell us right here that that grace trains us. Listen to what our own confession says. I, like, hold on with me because this might be tight language, but hang on and like, just kind of take a deep breath, listen up, and I'll tell you when you can exhale. When God converts a sinner, He translates him into the state of grace. He frees him from the natural bondage of sin, and by His grace alone, love this phrase, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Exhale. What in the world am I trying to drive home? The point here is to highlight how God works by His Spirit. We have been freed to do good. Look, Romans chapter 6 talks about this. Paul says that you are no longer slaves unto sin. And all of us go, yeah, man, I've been liberated. Well, i got bad news for you. You're still, a, you're still a slave. You know to what? To righteousness. To Christ. It now is your Master. He now is the one that has rule and reign over your life. And therefore, because of that, the Spirit comes into our very hearts and begins to reorient the logic board. Begins to give us new DNA, as it were. It begins to give us a new love for Christ. Because of that, we now can freely begin to choose to follow after Him. So, what does this all look like? Think about it like this. It's a grace that trains us. Think about the Father that with His Son is now beginning to teach Him how to throw a curveball. Envision, if you will, for just a moment, the, I don't know how old boys are taught to throw curves balls. My dad wouldn't teach me until I was like a teenager. But anyways, you're 13. You've got the grip on the ball. And in comes your dad's hands over yours. And he adjusts your fingers just so on the seams. And he says, now you start back here. And when you get about here, you're going to want to snap the wrist. And he begins to show you how that's done. 
fly fisherman. You had to learn how to cast that thing. Somebody had to show you how to get it just right so where the line kind of coiled all the way down and it landed just on the water like a fly would do. And do you remember how somebody had to teach you how to do that? Our girls are learning to walk right now. They're one. And so Laura and I hold them by their hands and we kind of, you know, lean their bodies left and right. And sometimes if the other one of us is free, we'll take their little chubby feet and, you know, put one in front of the other and, and do that. Now, some of you more seasoned parents are saying, what are you doing? Don't teach them to walk. Enjoy these days. Rookie mistake. I get it. But it's a training that involves God working in shaping you. Let's drive this home with some real practical application for just a second because I'm sure this is stirring up all sorts of questions. Paul wants us to see that we do, in fact, participate in the work of our sanctification. And if you don't have a gospel that understands that, um, may I buy you coffee? I mean, I'm, I don't mean that snarkily. I, I mean it. I, I want to. I would love to be able to talk with you about this, because he is telling us to work out, as it were, what we work in. Look at look at the text. He says it trains us to renounce ungodliness. How can you get around that? And it teaches us to say yes, as it were, to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Well, now look, a couple of things. Does that mean? that I need to wait till I feel like doing good before I do good. Look, if you're my age or down, this is the, this is the heresy of authenticity. You know what I mean by that? That God wants me to do good things authentically. And I'm going to wait till I really want to do something before I do it. And if you live like that, you'll kill your marriage. Here's what I mean. You don't wait to follow Jesus until you feel like it. We move forward because He has given us and liberated our very will. See, that's where I say this grace is unrelenting. It bores down into the very want-to apparatus of our hearts and begins to change it. Hallelujah! Because, see, He changes our wants. Think about that. That is glorious. He changes what we actually want. And what he is saying is, is that you don't wait until you actually feel like you want to do it until I do it. Now some say, but wait a second, does that just mean I'm going through the motions? And I answer, no. Here's why. Because when you undertake some sort of spiritual good or deny some sort of spiritual bad, underneath the premise of a future working of God, To do so is an incredible faith-filled act. Do you see that? I don't feel it now, Lord, but I'm going to love my wife. I love her. Nothing may happen. But a series of that, and you know what will happen? Your heart will begin to burn with service towards her. Your heart will begin to melt for the poor. And all I'm saying is is that we have got to begin to have categories in the Christian life for how the Christian life is actually lived out. And Paul is saying this, that the saving grace of God 
is never, ever, ever disconnected from the changing grace of God. I hope that I've given you some sort of practical categories to begin to think through this. And I do want to begin to close. Men and women, I long for this to be a deep encouragement for you and for me. I long for you to see that what God starts, He always finishes. And what He finishes, He finishes well. All that He has begun, He will not leave undone. It is certain. Take heart. Be of good cheer that God is not through with you or with any upon He, upon whom He has set His affection. Listen, some of y'all want to be, like me, the fourth person of the Trinity for the people in your lives that you love. And you just got to stop. I love being that fourth person in Laura, my wife's life. And it does nothing good. I'll put it more poignantly. Do you trust those who you love's sanctification to God? There's a powerful question for us to deal with. Because all of us live in a relationship somewhere where people, you wish they weren't the way they were. Well, guess what? That's a two-way street too. <laughs> and, and we need that as well. God is not through with you. He was, His blood was not spilt in the person of Jesus to leave the renewal of your heart as an unfinished work. Hear this rightly. God really does care and is more committed to your holiness and Christ-likeness than you are. And that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. C.S. Lewis puts it perfectly as he describes the work of God in our hearts as a master painter working on a canvas. Imagine that big canvas. As, as that painter works on it, listen to what he says. We are, not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art. Something that God is making and therefore something with which He will not be satisfied until it is, has a certain character. See, over a sketch made idly to amuse, amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. Sentient just means feeling. One can imagine a feeling picture. After being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in just a minute, in the same way it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then, we are wishing not for more love, but for less. God is unrelentingly committed to making you beautiful. And how do we know this? Because a king came not to amass power and to force fealty unto himself, but to give up power through his death that the uncherished would become the cherished. And, and that the cherishing therein 
would utterly remake and utterly renew the cherished heart. Amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, didst die for me. This is too good to be true. It's for you. It really is. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, would you take these things and impress them upon our heart? Lord, help us to see, for those of us that are discouraged, that you are not through with us yet. That you are working and that you are moving to make us more like Jesus. And this is the great project to which you have committed yourself by your Spirit. Lord, for those of us who have grown slack, renew us with your grace. Remind us that you are working in us, O Lord, and that real change is possible and that we really do participate and take up the bending of our wills and choosing that which is good, that which is enabled by the grace that you so freely give. Help my brothers and sisters to see this this morning. We pray that in everything, O Jesus, that you would be made much of. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?